hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of women's voices, and it wishes to break cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East, as well as educate and empower the younger generation of Middle Eastern women who were stripped of their historical reference and weren't necessarily raised to believe in their agency and power to create their own destiny. I'm Amman Malki. I'm a feminist, scholar, and educator. I'm also the author of Arab Women in Arab News, Old Stereotypes and New Media. I created this podcast to be an extension and an update of the book and its main topics. Hello and welcome to episode 3. This episode will be one of a series that will focus on women in conflict zones and unfortunately there are many in the Middle East. In this episode we will be focusing on the case of Yemen and Yemeni women. As I do in every episode, I'll be selecting the parts that are relevant from my book Arab Woman, followed by a discussion with a special guest who will be updating us today about the status of women in Yemen. And my treat to my listeners in this episode is a new recording done just for this podcast of a traditional song about Yemen. National struggles are carried by both men and women. The Arab Spring uncovered numerous examples of courageous Arab women heroes, risking not only their reputation but also their physical safety for the sake of reform. Samuel Aghrabi, a Yemeni journalist on the front line of the 2011 protests in Sana'a, was memorialized in a poetry for her valor. At one point, she was pushed to the ground by police, and one Yemeni bystander was so moved by her bravery that he dedicated a poem to her entitled Revolution of the Green Hijab to Samir Aghrabi and all other revolutionaries. The poem enjoyed wide circulation on the Arabic internet. During the Arab Spring of 2011, Arab leaders learned the hard way they risked the wrath of women if they played the religious card to block women's rights. On April 16, 2011, thousands of enraged Yemeni women filled the streets of Sana'a and other cities to protest against President Ali Abdullah Saleh's pronouncement that it was against Islam for women to join men in demonstrations aimed at toppling his regime. Arab Woman mentions a brief from Al-Quds al-Arabi on December 6, 2005, which describes the political aspiration of Sumeya Ali Raja, a Yemeni woman who lives in Paris and is the director of the Yemeni French Cultural Forum. She has nominated herself for the unlikely position of Yemen's next president. The fact that she has nominated herself for a position she is not likely to attain makes her candidacy more symbolic than realistic. This brief reports that Ali Raja declared herself a candidate just in case President Ali Abdullah Saleh made good on his promise not to run again. Raja noted that her self-nomination as a woman would make Yemen a pioneer in the region. Her administration, she declares, would transform the ambitions and hopes of Yemeni women from words to actions. She would work for women's rights and make the level of participation of women in different fields rise, in addition to showing more civilized side of the Yemeni society. Her platform would come straight from the concluding 
declarations of the Women's Rights Conference recently held in Sana'a. These declarations, if implemented, would help Yemeni women to enjoy their full legal and constitutional rights, increase their participation in the professions, and strive to achieve a more civilized side of Yemeni society. A postscript to the story, Ali Abdullah Saleh remained in power in 2005, of course, and Ali Rajaz's improbable candidacy never got off the ground. Now fast forward to January 2011 revolt in Sana'a. A Yemeni woman whose collective aspiration some thought would make her the most realistic candidate thus far to become Yemen's first female president. Her name is Tawakkul Karman. Tawakkul Karman, and long before the 2011 revolt, had been feted as a staunch defender of human rights in Yemen and showered with attention by the North American press, including the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and Toronto Star. In an interview with Al Jazeera in January 2010, she enumerated a list of abuses by the Yemeni government that would come to a head a year later, including t- detaining journalists terrorizing the residents of Eb and providing a fertile new ground for Al-Qaeda. This is an observation that was made months before Wikileaks uncovered and leaked the same facts. According to one profile by Common Ground News Service, what gave Karman the stature of a president in the making was her visionary capturing of the common aspirations of all Yemenis, focusing especially on curtailing corruption and unemployment. She was not simply a voice for a Yemeni woman, marveled the profiler, but a woman's voice for all Yemenis. Now let's go to our guest in this episode, Sama al-Hamadani. Sama al-Hamadani is an independent analyst focusing on Yemeni political dynamics, the role of regional actors in Yemen's war, and the obstacles in the path of transitional justice post-conflict. Previously, she was a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute, a visiting fellow at the Center of Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University, and a fellow at the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies. She's also the director of the Yemen Cultural Institute for Heritage and Arts, a non-profit in Washington, D.C., dedicated to Yemeni arts and heritage. From 2011 to 2015, she wrote the blog Yemeniyati.com with the slogan of Yemen Simplified, which helped explain Yemen's socio-political developments during the Arab Spring and the subsequent civil and regional wars. She has been published both in Arab and Western think tanks. Al-Hamadani has spoken at many events and forums, including Brown University, the Carnegie Middle East Center, the World Bank, the United Nations, and Chatham House. She has also made appearances on France 24, BBC World Service, CNN, Al Jazeera Al Arabi, Television, among other outlets. Sama'a holds a BA with a major in Religion and Peace Studies and a minor in Women's Studies from George Washington University. Sama in our chat today describes the current situation of war and its catastrophic implication on Yemeni people in general and Yemeni women in specific. She also talks about the multiple roles that Yemeni women are performing, some imposed on them and some they carry out to fill in the gaps in theirs and their families' lives. 
Sama also gives a historical overview of women in Yemen as they were in the past, touching on the potentials they projected and the misfortunes they faced. So Sama, lovely to have you on Women of the Middle East podcast. Um, when we speak about uh, Yemeni women, for example, an Arab woman, we found that they come under diverse thematic uh, headings. We saw them as active agents under the theme of anger and resistance um, and uh, touched upon uh, their role uh, during the revolution of 2011. We also saw them under aspiration and drive um, and under role modeling. Um, this was a bit um, of a change um, to the persistent portrayal of Yemeni women as victims. I, my question to you basically is how do you describe Yemeni women post-2011, especially during the last five to six years of war? First of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's quite the pleasure to be here speaking about Yemeni women, a subject that is very important and talked about but never talked about in just the right way. And so I thank you for this opportunity to discuss the realities of Yemeni women, which as you had mentioned, are quite diverse. Since 2011, there was a lot of coverage and media portrayal of Yemeni women going to the streets. They were angry, they were a key component of the revolution. And what was really interesting about Yemen in 2011 is that these women were acting free, right? It, it contradicted this image that we had of Yemeni women as victims. They were, they were taken to the streets, they were demanding their rights, and they were staying outside late uh, to late hours and they were mixing with men. So in a sense, it was this new idea for Yemeni women, a new image. And in fact, from the Arab Spring, we had one particular woman uh, that was the, the face of that revolution, at least globally speaking, not in Yemen, because there's so many women leaders internally. Uh, but then we had the Nobel Peace Prize winner who was a woman from Yemen because of the Arab Spring. In reality though, I would argue that the Arab Spring was only a short-lived phase where this portrayal of women was reality for a short time period. Within a month of, of that, women were already beaten in, in, the, in the Arab Square. Um, so in the change square, the women that were protesting were already beaten. They were marginalized from participating on stage. Only women who belonged to political parties were allowed to participate in the change process. So very quickly, the voice of independent women was silenced and politics took over. So the status of women, even if we talk about the Arab Spring, it was short-lived. It was already controlled by political parties as, as we've seen in Yemen. Uh, but since, since the war, there are so many roles that Yemeni women have taken. Some of the roles, if you want me to talk about them, we can talk about women as victims, right? That, that's the, the image that we see, you know, where they're killed. Um, they are the victims in the sense that if, if a man dies, they have to care for the children on their own. They're left helpless. They can't work. Uh, but then also there's a new type of victim, which is the kidnapped woman and the detained woman and the woman who gets a fabricated political crime pinned on her, uh, which is very new to Yemen's tribal culture, which always avoided doing that to women. So, so that's a new type of victim. Of course, we have women as token. And in that sense, I want to highlight that the current Yemeni government has uh, several female ambassadors and two two ministers, uh, Ms. Ibtihaj Al-Kamal, who's the Minister of Social Affairs, and uh, Nihal Al-Awlaqi, who's the Minister of Legal Affairs. 
And of course, it would be great uh, if they had a role on the ground. Unfortunately, the Yemeni government in general, not just these women, uh, don't have much of a role on the ground. And therefore, we see a lot of women still represented in political uh, situations, but they have no actual role and they're tokenized. And this also happened, you know, ever since in 2006 onwards, ever since women have been part of the Yemeni government. So in Yemen from 2006 onwards, uh, women were always part of, of the Yemeni government. But back to the roles of women uh, during Yemen's conflict, we have women as mediators. Um, this is a very traditional role for Yemeni women, historically speaking. We're a tribal culture. And what these women do is that they mediate uh, for, for you know, between their family and a tribal sheikh when someone is kidnapped and they vouch for them. Uh, they even help release prisoners. That's quite a prominent role where women play a massive, massive role in this. Um, today, politically, we see a group like uh, the, the mothers of the abductees who kind of cross the realm between mediator and activist. Uh, so women are mediators, they're activists, they, they there's this global trend where they prefer to see women as peacemakers or voices that demand peace and i think because of the politics in the country we also see a lot of women doing that uh, we also have women as healers as nurses as doctors as caregivers as uh, uh, you know birthing assistants as mothers and then we have women as workers so a lot of families that were hesitant to have their women work uh, because of the lack of jobs and the scarcity of it, they're now letting women work more than ever, except the problem is there are no jobs in Yemen. So it's kind of like a, a catch 22. Then you have a very important role that the media doesn't talk about as much, which is the role of women as fighters. And we have this happening across the political spectrum. Uh, first, you have the Houthi movement that that has organized uh, a section of women called the Zainabiyat. And, and these women run security and intelligence and they, um, they take care of all the female dealings that women have to go through. So they have women handling security to deal with women. Uh, of course, in the governorates of Marib, in Ta'az, in Adan, in Abyan, you have women belonging to other political parties and other sects fighting for their land and fighting to protect their own families. And so in Yemen, we also have this woman as a fighter. So those are all themes that we can explore uh, that have that woman, the roles that women have taken since 2011. Uh, Sama, what do you say about those variety of roles when you look at Yemeni um, uh, women outside Yemen? Uh, you see them also uh, occupying, you know, variety of roles um, and professions. Um, uh, many of which actually are geared towards, um, you know, uh, defending women um, and women rights and human rights in Yemen during this conflict. Uh, some of whom are uh, filmmakers, um, others, um, you know, have delved into politics as well. In 2015, for example, the Office of the Special Envoy and UN Woman uh, created uh, Tawafaq, uh, right. the Yemeni uh, Women's Pact, um, who have been also um, uh, called upon for advice on peace um, um, and peace negotiations in Yemen. Um, how do you see this? Do women outside Yemen know what's happening to women inside Yemen? And uh, do they really speak on their behalf? Right. And so this is a very important question because I think that the women outside of Yemen are also part of this woman as token category that we talked about. Women outside of Yemen uh, are Western educated. 
They almost always have a second language with very little roots on the ground. They may have grown up there like myself. Uh, I'm one of these women where I grew up in Yemen and was raised there. But at the moment, I can't speak on behalf of these women. I can try to speak in empathy for them and to support them from outside. But of course, that doesn't substitute the voice coming from within. Now, the contradiction is, is all these women working from outside are working in structured political programs. Like you mentioned, one of the examples is the UN woman uh, category and a lot of NGOs are lobbying for women's rights. But on the ground, there is a disconnect where the average Yemeni woman is not even aware of what these programs mean for her. How does it represent her? And not just that, there's another gap happening where you have independent woman voices who are, and you mentioned filmmakers, women are making films and the diaspora trying to amplify and raise the voice of Yemeni women, which I think is actually the most effective way to represent the voices of women inside Yemen. But it's still, there's still a gap. Now, a phenomena that we see today is the, the use of social media. And on Instagram and Facebook, you'll find all these chat groups that talk about Yemeni feminist movements. Um, and they talk about very daring subjects. They talk about rape, about sexual harassment, about polygamy, about women's right to uh, to choose how they dress. And they get a lot of critique. Yet there is a gap uh, first, primarily because the conversations taking place are dictated by Western discourse of feminism. And second of all, because women on the ground in Yemen most of the times don't even have phones and Internet to access these accounts. And so you have these two realm, two realities happening. There are Yemeni women who are part of the international diaspora, that are part of the global economy, that are part of the conversations that are taking place about women that affect women in general. And then you have women in Yemen who are affected by their own reality, who can't connect with what's happening globally and are struggling to have a voice. And I think it's really important to note that Yemeni women were not in this miserable condition that we see them in today before uh, like urban days. So before I was born, Yemen had quite the amazing feminist history in the Arabian Peninsula. Tell us more about this and please. Yemen before 1990 used to be two countries. We had the south of Yemen and we had the north of Yemen. And the south of Yemen was called the PDRY, People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. And even prior to their independence from the British, because the, they had British colonialism there, women started going to schools in the early 50s. And, and so from even before independence from the British in 1967, women in the south of Yemen were already lawyers. They were judges. They were school principals. They always assumed the role of educators. They were even doctors. And they gained more rights after independence because their country introduced a new fam family law, which equated women with men in front of the law. This law was phenomenal. No other, you know, in the entire Middle East and North Africa region, Uh, Tunisia and the south of Yemen had the most progressive family laws in the region at that time. And so what happened then is pretty much socialism, which was the ideology that they adopted, uh, equated men and women as workers. And as workers, there is no distinction between man and woman. And so women were enabled and and kind of their rights were championed under the umbrella of working. Um, so it was really interesting because they were quite advanced. Uh, the law, the family law that I mentioned actually even banned polygamy and women were participating in the presidential council in their government in 1968. You know, if you look at the Arabian Peninsula, that's quite impressive. In the north of Yemen, though, 
there was uh, an Ottoman rule and there was uh, a Zaydi imamate, which was far more conservative than the south of Yemen. The Republic uh, of Yemen there, women were not allowed to be lawyers or judges uh, because the law and, and being a judge was always tied to the tribe and religion, which was really hard for women to break into. And, and it was really tough for women to, to fill these spaces that women in the south of Yemen had. Uh, there was also one school for women during the Ottoman rule in the north of Yemen, in Damar, but it was only open to certain families. So women of like elite and ruling families were able to participate there, and the entire education was actually religious. So it wasn't until 1962 when Yemen became a republic and renounced the imamate that women's education expanded, and education became free for everyone. That changed the game for women. From 1962 until unity, the best thing that the Yemeni North government did is provide an education system for young boys and girls. In the South, for example, uh, you had women from the 50s already graduating from Oxford University. Um, from, from the North, however, you started seeing women seeking education abroad from the 70s. They were being sent by the Yemeni government. Uh, the Yemeni government at that time had a program that actually preferred sending women abroad over men to encourage women enrollment in schools. And, and this program was actually doing really well. It wasn't until 1990 when the North and South merged, where you start seeing a lot of, you know, when, when Yemen became one, a lot of the judges and female lawyers that Yemen had naturally came from the South as they historically held that position. And then women were, were trying to still um, improve their status but because of politics and because what was happening, the, the situation of Yemen deteriorated and the situation of women got worse and worse. You know, what's really shocking is that when we look at, at what's happening today, Yemen's war reversed everything that happened in the last 50 years. So prior to 2011, Yemen finally reached 63% uh, of young girl enrollment in school. That was the highest number that Yemen's ever gotten. Today in the war, that number is down to 30%. Illiteracy was finally decreasing, but today it's coming back. You know, the war and now top, top, you know, add on top of it, COVID-19, women are staying home. They're not seeking an education. Today, it's really hard for women to have access to contraceptive uh, devices or to have access to hospitals. Domestic violence is on the rise. It's, it's incredible how... Yemen is like this this country that had so much potential for women and women had uh, some sense of like a promising uh, presence in the region. You know, they were towards the end, you know, and, and still today we still have female ministers and ambassadors, but there there was a sense that it was going to be a real representation and not just one of, you know, we have a female who's a, an ambassador, a minister, but they don't actually have a role. Women in Yemen has not uh, reached a critical mass to change the status quo, to change policies, to ch change laws. For example, Yemen is also always deemed as one of the worst countries to live in as a woman. It's a country that is ranked um, uh, the last in the World Economic uh, Forum's uh, Global Gender Gap Index, you know, for 13 uh, consecutive years. So why is still Yemen uh, so unfair and unjust to women? Right, and, and the answer to that question is actually gonna be composed of, of two answers, right? First of all, we have to look at what happened at the end of the 70s with the Iranian revolution and the rise of Wahhabism and religious extremism in general in the region. Yemen was 
the country as a whole was a victim to religious ideologies and religious extremism. So the condition of women declined in parallel to the expansion of, of religious doctrines in the region. And so what happened is that um, as, as the country became more urban and, and more religious Salafi or so on, the less women had rights. And so uh, today, for example, a woman's appearance is considered awra or a taboo. It shouldn't be seen. Um, and therefore, not just her face, even her voice. Right. Let's not forget that Yemen is a country where there are portions of the country now controlled by religious extremists. First, you have uh, regions of the country that are controlled by Daesh and Al-Qaeda, where they've they've come out publicly and condemned women going to hospitals. They banned them from going to hospitals, even if the doctor is a woman. That's how radical it is. And then in the north of Yemen, you have the Houthis, who are also extremists in the sense that they banned uh, mixing of men and women in coffee shops. Right. And they, they started controlling the social life of women and their appearance and movement. And so you have all these systems on the ground that are not allowing women uh, the opportunity to have a say in, in who governs them and how their lives are lived. This is what what's happened in Yemen progressively over time. Unfortunately, in Yemen's realities, because the government is so weak and that's the only system that provided a national agenda, that's the only system that can provide women the right to education. It's the only system that could protect women and empower them forward. Uh, in the presence of the Yemeni government, you can only have militias. And in Yemen's militias, they're ideological and they are they are not pro-woman. And, and this is, of course, to say, you know, this not to say that this is just Islam. Of course, we know that this happens in every religious movement, whether it was uh, Jewish or Christian. They tend to be conservative when it comes to women's rights and they tend to uh, disempower them. Right. And so you have that as part of the answer. And then in today's in today's world, and I kind of tied it into the second answer, which is look at the realities on the ground. How can you change laws when you're when the government is living in Riyadh, when they're struggling to even be present in Aden, when the majority of the country is divided in the arms of militias and political parties and there isn't a structured way to do anything. In the absence of peace, women will never have the dignity that they deserve to have. Um, you spoke about how women are tokens and they're a part of the political agenda, propaganda and a media campaign agenda, let's say. Um, but what about women's associations? What about, is there a hope for grassroots change in Yemen? Do you have women associations as, as part of NGOs? Right. There, so Yemen, I have to say this, Yemen had a, um, a decent civil society organization landscape in Yemen. What the war did, though, is uh, what we've built on as civil society organizations has now changed into becoming aid organizations. So instead of working on uh, projects that enable the youth and women and so on, they now work on delivering aid. And, and that's because of the demand for aid in Yemen. Um, because millions of people are starving, Yemen's situation is really dire. Add to it, we want to talk about women's issues, right? And so what happened, I think, is... When we talk about women's issues, a lot of outside donors, whether it be the EU or the UN or the US or the UK, they always want to jump and fund women's programs. And so you had this discrepancy that was happening as early as 2011, where the Arab Spring happened. And then there were a lot of projects funded in Yemen that were supposed to support women to be part of the parliament. 
to support women to nominate themselves to run for elections. There were programs that sounded really great on paper, but weren't really applicable on the ground. And that's where I think, in a sense, I blame the donor for writing, uh, you know, this is this is the amount of money that we have. This is how much we want to give. But the project has to be this. Um, in Yemen's case, the project had to be a little bit different. Now, today, fast forward, there are female alliances. There's Women's Solidarity Group. Uh, there's the Mother of Abductees. There are all these women groups that are coming together, pushing for agendas. But, you know, I'm, I'm implementing something. First, you have to pass it with the UN. Uh, the Yemeni government get approved. You know, you, you have to get a consensus on it. And then you have to figure out a way to apply it in Yemen. Again, because of the war, because there's an absence of, of law and order on the ground, you really can't protect women or men, right? We're talking about a time period where no one is safe, not just women. And, and so that's really important to emphasize that a lot of the conversations taking place with the UN and abroad are a bit disconnected. They're a bit mature for the realities that are happening on the ground. For example, a lot of the conversations assume that Yemen will continue to be one country and that um, if the war just stops, everything will go back to normal and will hold elections. In reality, the ground is playing out to look like Yemen will fragment. It's looking like there won't be elections right away and it looks like militias will continue to hold the ground for a really long time. And so the conversations that are being dictated from the top down are a little bit irrelevant to what's happening in Yemen. Is COVID-19 really a, a, a challenge that they're facing among the many other serious challenges? There is no doubt that COVID-19 is shaking Yemen. The only issue with it is that we don't have a clear idea of the numbers there. We don't have enough tests to test everyone and the numbers have been really low, even though in reality we know that there was, there was at least a period of time, a two-week period where tons of people died in the south of Yemen and in the north of Yemen to the point where they had to dig out mass graves and they were just dropping bodies in. That's how, how hard COVID-19 was hitting Yemen. And I think it will continue to hit Yemen in the same way. Uh, the, the hospital system was already really weak. The hospitals, the clinics, they were already in really bad shape trying to, to work uh, under war, under a siege, um, trying to get medicines into the country sometimes is just like a complete nightmare, especially today with, with fuel shortages. You can't even fly medicine into some portions of the country. Um, hospitals collapsed. Healthcare system collapsed with COVID-19. That's terrifying, not just for women, again, for men and, and women. Yemen, Yemen at this point is not just an awful place for women to live, it's an awful place to live in, period. When we speak about um, the challenges that, um, um, that Yemeni women face, it's always about um, violence against women, and we're, it's not to reduce, of course, um, the impact of violence and, and the severity of violence and that it actually takes place, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there is um, a focus on um, child marriages. Mm -hmm. uh, how is this right now? Is this something that is uh, talked about? Is uh, Are there any associations, uh, committees that uh, are actually um, uh, looking into that in Yemen, helping a young woman or children actually who are forced into marriages? or it's not something that is as important as what, you know, Yemeni women are facing. Right. So child marriages in Yemen has always been um, a key talking point. It's been a buzzword in the West. 
And it's it's kind of interesting for me because I I wrote a, a massive research on child marriages in Yemen, and then I was part of a, a, a fiction film on child marriages. And so I strongly believe that we need to protect young girls from being married underage. But I have to say that it's it's getting to be a bit of a cliche of how the West is fixated on it. There's so many issues that women are facing that are far worse. Starvation, um, not having a home, being displaced, being a victim of, you know, not just child marriage, but also just being a victim of possibly being raped by anyone in, in the circumstance of war. Um, and so I think it's it's one of those things where it's focused on upon like in, in a way where they want to say Yemen's culture is bad. When in reality, a lot of these young girls are being married at that age due to economic strife and due to deteriorating economic conditions. And so if you improve the living conditions of families and of children, I doubt that we'd see this high number of child marriages taking place. And I also want to take this opportunity to note that in Yemen, it's not just girls who get married young. It's also young boys. When I was in school, there was this young guy who was married at the age of 14 and his wife was just the same age as him. And so in, in Yemen's mentality, you're a child and then you become a man or a woman. In a sense, we, we cross out that teenage phase. And that has to do with the fact that in Yemen, you have to take on so many responsibilities at such a young age. Life is not fun. Life is not a leisure. And therefore, you just assume those roles a lot quicker. Um, so I just want to highlight that when it comes to child marriages. Of course, it's continuously talked about. But is it materializing into any real change? I don't think so. In 2012-2013, when we had the National Dialogue Conference, one of the things that they discussed was the, the constitution of Yemen. And they were talking about the articles that would go in. And one of the biggest uh, problems that they had was about the age of consent to get married. Um, again, we had Salafi groups and religious groups like the Houthis and others who wanted to keep that age low. They did not want it to be 18. Um, so as long as as long as Yemen is being run by certain ideologues, they will defend the ideologies and beliefs that they have. And, and so this is going to be Yemen's battle for the next 30 years. How do you find tolerance in, in ideologies that want to promote control? It's, it's unfortunate, exactly. And due to those circumstances, now they want kids to become adults. So you see a children fighters um, at right. the age of 10 and 11. Um, and right. they want to make their own living and such. Yes, it's... So you have the children, the boys fighting and the woman getting married at 14. And, and that's a side effect of where I, I truly believe that, you know, we were doing so well in terms of reducing the number of child marriages. My grandmother's generation, she got married when she was very young. My mother got married when she was older. And then, you know, it's kind of a generational thing that with education and with opportunities and um, just the ability to, to, to give women alternatives and alternative life. If, if a woman can't get a job and can't do anything, then her destiny is always to just have children. So why not do it sooner? Let's speak about the educated youth in Yemen. Who, um, whose education has been interrupted, who cannot uh, be a part of that fight. And, and their fight is, is to maybe mitigate between what's happening in Yemen to the world outside. How do they, how do they communicate to the outer world? What do they do? So on the subject of youth 
and and how they feel. I, I, I mean, I feel like the generation that was born in the 90s onwards, they didn't really have a chance to live a decent life in Yemen. They didn't get to see the highs that the generations before us saw. And I think that's really tragic because what happened with the war is they feel that they don't control their own lives and destinies. And that's very disempowering when you feel caught up in a, in a world where nobody gives a damn if you live or if you die. Um, you can't find a job. The only jobs that you can find would have to involve violence and war, which means that you would have to join a faction in order to survive and have dignity, which is unfortunately what's happening with the decay of national identity and the rise of micro identities or the, the need to belong to a religious sect or a geographic region in Yemen. You, you see that the only way for you to have some sort of meaning is to re-identify yourself or align yourself with someone else's interests that are not really yours. And I think that's really tragic. I think the Yemenis stuck in Yemen, they feel trapped. They can't get out. They can't, you know, even the smart ones, if they want to go and pursue education abroad, it's really difficult for them to get visas in the first place to go abroad. And if they go abroad, then they can't cover the living costs of, of studying abroad. So when they leave abroad, if they want to pursue education, they can't. They have to start working because the costs are so high. And their families living in Yemen, not only can they not support them, they are now dependent on their relative who's abroad to send them money back, remittances, which is a whole other issue. So in a sense, their, their, their dreams are robbed from them, right? If you talk to someone who's like, I always wanted to be this, I always wanted to be this, but instead I had to do this to survive. I feel like that would be the most common narrative that is taking place amongst the youth. Um, of course, you have Yemeni in the Yemenis in the diaspora. A lot of them are taking it upon themselves to amplify the voices of Yemenis, but that's really hard because you, you, when you do that, you struggle with with subjects like survival's guilt you struggle with the responsibility to tell someone else's story but you can never really tell someone else's story um, no matter how hard you work you're still working from outside your country therefore you can't really make real change on the ground uh, it's a quite frustrating process and i think for a lot of the Yemenis that are educated and working abroad it's 10 times harder to get to the position that you need to get to in life when it's not in your own home country where you have more uh, support or dignity or access to certain things, you're going to have to work 10 times harder and you're going to have to prove yourself. Um, of course, a lot of times when young Yemenis make it abroad, they just want to focus on their own lives. And, and that's totally understandable because when you look at Yemen, what's happening in Yemen is not determined by Yemenis. It is determined by regional actors. Yemen has been hijacked in this war. And so for peace to come or for war to come, it's no longer in the hands of Yemenis. And I think that stripped almost every Yemeni from any sense of self-esteem. And when you operate in life with that psychology, you are hopeless, you are sad, you are barely surviving. And unfortunately, as dark as it sounds, I think I think that's that's where a lot of young people are. There must be something that we could do, a small thing. Right. The, the smallest thing, we need to stop the war. That That's literally the first step 
to any possible solution. You can come up with six or seven solutions or approaches or mechanisms to solve uh, female displacement or young marriages or whatever it is that you're trying to solve, whatever mechanism you put in place, the step number one is peace. That is the step number one. And I, I want to add something here. You know, historically in Yemen, Yemen had queens. So pre-Islamically, we had queens. Pre-Islamically, women were priestesses. They had the highest levels of, of power when it comes to religion and politics. And even after Islam, we had a queen, uh, Arwa bint Ahmed al-Sulayhi, who founded Jibla. And even her aunt, who uh, I think her name was Asma bint Shahab, she paved the way for Arwa to be queen. And we had, you know, in, in ancient history, we had poets. We had Zainab al-Shahari and Ghazal al-Makdashi. And we, I think historically, women played such a key role in politics and in in just social, co like they, they helped empower communities. I think that because of the history and the heritage that Yemeni women have, that role is not going to disappear. I personally, I'm not afraid of that. I think that women are facing a lot of challenges. They're being silenced. They are being um, pushed aside and marginalized. But I don't think that this heritage is going to die. I think that it is embedded in 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 what we inherit from our parents. It's in, it's it's in us. It's available to us. And I think that if we can secure peace in Yemen then these women would take off. They just need a little bit of support. All these programs that are working in goodwill abroad, they can't do anything for Yemeni women unless there's peace. Once there's peace, the, outs the, the people working from abroad or outside can connect with the people inside. And that's when we'll see the push. I totally agree with you. I see that power. I see that power in you. I see that power and uh, even the students, my students, um, who are from Yemen, who's doing their master's and PhD, you see that much power and you see how much they're vocal and they are, they, they know their history, they know um, how they're disadvantaged at this time of history and they do have hope that things will change. Right. Well, I want to also add, you know, that it's very interesting as I meet women from different cultures that the first shock that really happened to me when I went to America is that a lot of the, the characteristics that I have in my personality as I studied feminism in school, I realized they would be described as masculine in a Western culture. So resiliency, strength, um, speaking your mind, being honest, uh, all these things were kind of, you know, categorized as masculine characteristics in the West. While in Yemen, it's embedded to, in us that a decent, good woman is this way. And so in our own culture, we, you know, if we are to study Yemeni feminism, Women are vocal, they are assertive. A lot of times they are head of households, even though there are a lot of stories where they're not. Uh, and so it differs from one family to the other. But there are many families where women are heads of households um, and they always have a say somehow. I want to highlight that Yemeni women is a huge group in Yemen. And it would be really difficult to always talk about them as one homogenous group. Uh, they are diverse, right? So women's identity intersects with other things. You might be uh, a Yemeni woman who's also of African descent. You might be a Yemeni woman who's young and marginalized. You might be a Yemeni woman who's tribal and elite. Um, so you have this intersectionality of, of being a woman from Yemen and with it comes different challenges for the, for the identities that intersect in you. And so I expect everyone's fight to be a different fight. And so the solutions that are prescribed 
for helping the status of women in Yemen have to take into consideration how their realities are different based on the geographical regions that they live in, based on their own identities, based on the their ability to access school, healthcare, so on and so forth. I think Yemen should be, as tragic as it is, it should be an easy fix in the sense that we get to focus on healthcare, education, basic rights. When you secure that, you would have a massive transformation across the entire country. And I, you know, the, the positive note that I that I can add is that despite all the negative things that I know and despite being a hardcore realist, I truly genuinely believe that Yemen will see better days and that it won't be too far away from today. I truly, I, I know for a fact that the younger generation of Yemeni women will be leaders, that they will have a strong voice and that they will impact their own communities. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Sama. Thank you for this wonderful discussion. I end the episode with a treat. It's a Yemeni traditional song that takes us back to a time and a place that is so different than the one that Yemen lives in today. The song is a gift from the magnificent Nidal Ayborek, an Arabic singer and producer. So enjoy! And until next time, take care and stay safe. <laughs> ما رأت عينيك حسن والدلال لا بأرض الهند أو أرض الحبال كامل الأوصاف محمود الخصال كل من شافه تعجب واندهش كامل الأوصاف محمود الخصال كل من شافه تعجب واندهش خده التفاح والحاجب هلال والمباسم ورد أحمر جد فتش خده التفاح والحاجب هلال والمباسم ورد أحمر جد فتش لما خطر ذاك الغزال هل معك شما أنا هالك عطش قلت له لما خطر ذاك الغزال هل معك شما أنا هالك عطش مقصد الشربة من الماء الزلال مكرمة وإن شئت بدفعلك بقش مقصد الشربة من الماء الزلال مكرمة وإن شئت بدفعلك بقش لا بأرض الهند أو أرض الحبش لا بأرض الهند أو أرض الحبش